0: the New Books and Political Science podcast. My name is Heath Brown. Today, I'll be talking with the author of Subsidizing Democracy, How Public Funding Changes Elections, Work in the Future, Books published by Cornell University Press. The author is Michael, Michael Miller. I have a real pleasure to talk with Michael today. I hope that you enjoy it. Welcome back to the podcast. Again, I'm speaking with Michael Miller. This is the New Books and Political Science podcast. My name is Heath Brown. Today, I'll be talking with the author of Subsidizing Democracy, How Public Funding Changes Elections, Work in the Future, published by Cornell University Press. The author is Michael, Michael Miller. I have a real pleasure to talk with Michael today. I hope that you enjoy. Welcome back to the podcast. Again, I'm speaking with Michael Miller today, who's the author of Subsidizing Democracy, How Public Funding Changes Elections, and How It Can Work in the Future, published by Cornell University Press. Michael, how are you doing today? I'm
1: well. Thanks for having me on.
0: Yeah, pleasure to have you on. Um, you are based in New York City, as I am. Uh, maybe you can tell us just a little bit about yourself, where you are now, where you've been in the past.
1: Uh, sure. I'm an uh, assistant professor of political science at Barnard College uh, in New York right now. Uh, this was my first year. And uh, for four years before that, I was at the Springfield campus, at the University of Illinois, uh, which was my first job out of grad school. And before grad school, I was a political operative uh Doing strategy and and consulting on uh, federal political campaigns, which really gave me the questions and ideas that I pursued uh, in the dissertation that ultimately became this book.
0: Yeah, and and um, it's it's you know not surprising that you say this given the details of this book, and I can't think of a book that is more timely uh, right now than than yours. Um, You know, the coverage of the role of money in politics in the 2016 election seems to just grow and grow and grow every day. Uh, You allude to it just now. But but when did this book project begin? I remember the exact moment, actually. I had been uh, working
1: on on a U.S. House race. I was actually the campaign manager on that race. And one of the things that the media get right, they get an awful lot wrong uh, about when you see dramatic accounts of political campaigns. They get they get most of it wrong most of the time. But one thing that they always get right is that moment where you make the concession call. Right. Your candidate has lost Mm -hmm. and you're in this dark hotel room and everybody feels really defeated. And you call the congressman and concede. And my candidate did that. And he hung up the phone and looked at me and said, imagine what we could have done if only we'd been able to raise money. Uh, And, you know, that was a problem that dogged that candidate. and, And that's the dirty secret of American politics I think if you really looked into congressional campaigns state legislative campaigns and just see how many of them are not what we think they are that campaign was not at all atypical it was run out of the the candidates house we didn't really have a proper office for much of it and we were outspent I think eight to one in that race and you just see these candidates you know, you can make a market argument and say, well, one reason you're so underfunded is because, you know, you're in a, you're in a district where people don't think you're going to win, or you're just not a very good candidate to begin with. And I think there's merit to that. But from the perspective of the candidates who, you know, are possibly there knowing that they're going to lose, they do feel cheated, uh, figuring that, you know, at, at the very least, voters deserve a choice and a conversation. And I think in that moment I, I started thinking about well, are there reforms that could have delivered the conversation to voters in this district? Is there a way for a candidate like this, even if he's probably not going to win, to you know at least circumvent the market forces that that really silenced him during that race? And I and I started looking into the the various programs in the states, and I discovered these ones, and and really thought that. The way that they were being written about did not reflect the way that candidates would set their strategy and orient to them and respond to the incentives that they offered. And that's really where I went in the book.
0: Yeah, and, you know, the larger context of this story um, that you tell is the rising cost of running for office. You suggest a couple of the answers to this question, but what is the harm of expensive campaigns? Why is this something that uh, we should all Think about and, and maybe worry about.
1: Well, you know, I don't know if if there is an inherent harm in, ex, in expensive campaigns. I mean, the Supreme Court has consistently held that you know that the the more the more money in politics, the better because it means more speech and more perspectives. And and I'm am sensitive to that. But from the perspective of candidates and particularly would be candidates, you know, imagine you're a school teacher and and you want to run for state house or or even Congress. And the the one thing that's really going to keep you from doing that is the cost of running. You look at the price tag in some states. You know, it's fifty, seventy thousand dollars just to win a seat in the in the lower house of the of the you know the, the legislature. And, and people are really going to struggle with that. I mean, who out there can raise that kind of money with their existing network of friends and professional connections? And so it's problematic. From a democratic theory standpoint, if you believe that running for office is the penultimate form of participation, um, I think by raising these financial barriers, we are really dealing people out and leaving uh, you know the, the the ramifications for that are that you know serving as a legislator legislator are really you know it really becomes the, the service, a, a place for the rich and and you keep, uh, you know, so-called average folks out of office, and, and I'm not sure that that's the intent.
0: Now, you you focus on um, public financing of elections. I wonder if you'd map for us where public financing is available, and also the variation in what's available to candidates in these different places. Sure.
1: There's a lot of flavors of, of public financing, and I think, you know, for listeners, it's Really important to to clarify that we are not talking about congressional campaigns in the book. There's no public funding available for congressional candidates in the U.S. There is for presidential candidates, but it's been you know largely uh, that that system has fallen away now as as elections have exploded in cost recently. So we're we're talking about uh, elections for state offices, and the the programs that I engaged in the book are called clean election systems. And they were active in, in 2008, which is, was the election that I examined, in Arizona, Connecticut, and Maine. Um, and there were smaller partial programs in Minnesota, Wisconsin, and Hawaii. And those are the programs that I took on in the book. Uh, the difference between clean elections and partial funding is uh, fairly straightforward. As a clean elections candidate in, say, Arizona, if I want to run for the State House of Representatives in Arizona, what I need to do is convince 210 people to give me exactly $5. And if I can do that, the state deems me a viable candidate and gives me essentially all of the money that I need to run a viable campaign for that office, which is, at the time, was was a little more than $30,000. So once you, and and the, the way that you demonstrate viability is, you know, it varies by state, but that's that's really the, the nature of this thing. You you get these small five dollar contributions from a preset number of people and and then you, you get all of the money that you need. And so the deal that you make with the state in these programs is you're only going to spend that money. So if I get thirty three thousand, I'm not going to go out and raise more. I have agreed to a firm spending cap. So really what those programs do is they, they take fundraising Off of the menu of things that candidates need to do. So, in contrast, the smaller systems in Minnesota, Wisconsin, and Hawaii, they only give you a little bit of the money. So, you might have a thirty thousand dollar spending limit, but they'll only give you eight. The rest you have to um, raise yourself. And I recognized strategically those two kinds of programs created vastly different incentives uh, for for candidates.
0: Now. Are these are these mandatory? Do we do we see uh, the um, students uh, or candidates opting into these? And and do we have uh, races where there is a candidate who has opted in and another where the other candidate hasn't opted in? How do these work in 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 practice?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, Public funding, anytime it includes a spending cap, which it almost always does, public funding has to be optional. Because the Supreme Court held in the Buckley decision that spending is speech. So if you're uh, you can't mandate a spending cap on a candidate. So you see these uh, candidates will have the choice of whether they want to opt in or opt out. And what that really comes down to is, is a calculated decision. Can I raise more money uh, than the spending limit? And what would the effort be to have to do that? Now, at the time I wrote the book, there was also this kind of curious uh, feature of the clean election systems called matching funds. Where if I run against you and I take the, the public money and you don't because maybe you're an incumbent and you figure, well, I can, I can raise much more than 33000 pretty easily. I can say I can raise 75000 So you opt out and, and you raise money in the private uh, marketplace just like any candidate that we might think of would do. For every dollar that you would spend above my 33000 I would get a check match. And we would be locked in financial parity up to about a $100,000. So you would have to work actually really hard to outspend me. And this kind of created other, you know, incentives for candidates. In this situation, you might rationally figure that, hey, you know, I, I want to do all these things, but I've already spent more than Miller's thirty-three thousand dollars, so I, I, I'm not going to do that because, you know, as one candidate in the book says, that that feeds the alligator trying to eat me. Uh, and so, you know, that actually became the basis of a First Amendment challenge that candidates brought uh, after I wrote the book about that part of public funding. And the Supreme Court ultimately struck that down uh, as an unconstitutional uh, restriction on First Amendment rights of non-participating candidates. So there's all kinds of things happening here by the structure of the program.
0: Now, one of the hopes of public funding is is to allow candidates to campaign rather than just fundraise. What did you find about the effects of public funding on just the daily life of candidates for office?
1: Well, I began the book with the, you know, kind of theoretical expectation that hey, it's not just about money. Sure money's great. If you have it as a candidate, you can use it to to buy the ads, buy the mailers that, that you're going to use to change people's mind, get your word out. But really, I mean, from my experience running congressional campaigns, I know that candidates are spending six, seven, eight hours a day raising money. And what I found for state legislative candidates, you know, I should I should say that, that I surveyed candidates for the book in the 2008 election, not just the six states that I mentioned. I actually surveyed candidates from 18 states because I wanted to get good comparison of uh, privately and, and publicly funded candidates. And what I found that candidates running for state house that are raising money from private sources are spending about six hours a week uh, just on fundraising. And so the expectation was, you know, as a as a campaign manager or as a candidate, what could I do with six hours a week? And I expected that the candidates weren't going to you know, go to the beach uh, and take a day off. With that time, but rather that they'd reinvested into things that political science has previously demonstrated to be really effective at, at you know, getting out supporters like high-quality face-to-face field canvassing, and that's what I found uh, is about five percentage points difference in the personal interaction between candidates and voters when the candidates are taking uh, public funding, and that translates to gains in votes. In districts where at least one candidate was uh, was publicly funded, we see much higher voter participation, to the tune of about twenty percent more people are voting. That's you know for people who are nerdy like me, that would be a, a reduction in roll off uh, mm-hmm. of about four four percentage points. That's the percentage of people who say show up and vote for Obama and then leave. We see more people because the theoretical expectation is not that you know, these state legislative campaigns are going to be the reason why you get off the couch and go to the polling place. But maybe you hang around and keep voting farther down the ballot if somebody knocked on your door and said, hey, I'm running for office. And, you know, I think that story really hangs together as a narrative where because they don't have to raise money, they're getting out there and beating the bushes and knocking on doors and having conversations, as I say in the book, probably over the course of a campaign, thousands of conversations with voters that wouldn't have occurred otherwise and you know going back to your earlier question about you know the concerns that we have for for high price tag races well there it is if you don't have to raise money and and it goes back to the question that the candidate asked me in that dark hotel room imagine what we could have done if only we'd have the money that's what they do
0: and what about who actually runs Um, What did you find on the relationship between these public financing changes and and anything about the quality of candidates?
1: Yeah, quality is a really tricky concept. And I think listeners to this podcast probably know that, Uh, you know, we have always defined it as a field um, as, well, we're going to put a a variable in our models and, and call a candidate quality if they've won a lower office and the recognition and the reason that we do that is because you think well if you've won a lower office you have you've demonstrated the ability to run a viable campaign and it's you know it's a shortcut measure of all the squishy things that that we can't observe what i find in the book is that you know, when you give candidates normal people you know the school teacher that i was alluding to earlier when you give them these large subsidies they instantly uh demonstrate all the behavior that you'd expect from a quality candidate i mean they have the money to, to stand in there and go toe-to-toe in, a, in an advertising campaign. They have the money to pay the walkers. And so the campaign really isn't about who they knew before. It's about the connections that they make during the race. And one of the arguments that I make in the book is that these public subsidies really are an engine to manufacture instantly uh, public uh, qu- high-quality candidates. It's the one analogy that I've made a lot is it's like one of those if if you go camping, they have tents now that you can just kind of arrive and, and kind of throw it in the air and it pops pops up immediately. And, you know, that's what we're doing for for candidate quality when we offer them these large subsidies. They're instant now, quality candidates.
0: Right. Now, now from a certain standpoint, and maybe we just sort of step back from from what you, I think, demonstrate in such interesting empirical ways in the book, is a, it's just a question of how much this actually matters. Um, you know, As we look ahead to 2016 and you look at the, the, the funding, the, the direct funding from candidates, it's going to be tiny compared to the outside funding from super PACs and, and the like. Um, maybe you could just sort of talk about the larger context of how this, how this matters in a, in a turbocharged uh, uh, campaign system that um that has money coming in from so many different sides that 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 developing a policy in one area is likely to be frustrated by all of this work in other areas. Can you talk a little bit about super PACs and how this relates? Oh, sure we've been wrestling with this idea for a long time I mean
1: it's generally referred to as hydraulic theory, right like Money is like water, and it's going to find its way into the the system, just like water finds its way into your basement if you have a crack. I think the the and, and I sh- and since I've written this this book, which was done during the 2008 election, you know, we had Citizens United. We've seen an explosion of outside spending, not just in federal races, but also in the states. In fact, I think you know in 2016 we're really in to, for 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 a huge explosion of outside money at the state level but i think you know when we when we talk about this as scholars and when when i you know have these conversations with folks in the reform community i think you got to draw the line somewhere and say okay well maybe we give the candidate thirty thousand dollars and they do all these things and they run this really snappy nice publicly focused campaign but you've got this super PAC who buries them in cash and so why bother but i don't I don't I don't know as a citizen that I can go along with that because I think it's worth taking a step back and saying, are there policy things that we can do that at least give tools to people who want to participate in the process? And sure, you might get buried in outside spending, but you might not. And I think, you know, looking at the effects of campaign finance, uh, in determining who wins races, I think it's a little short-sighted to say, well, why bother doing this because there's all this money floating around? Because is one thing that I know is that m- money doesn't determine the winner of an election. You know, you, we see it every year. Challengers are outspent by incumbents, but they, they still knock them off. And so that's one thing to bear in mind. I think, you know, the one thing that we can say about money in politics is, you know, it might not determine the winner, but if you don't have any of it, you're not going to win. And these programs really address that concern. Why not give people the tools, even if they're going to lose? Uh, why not give them the tools to give voters a real choice and have that conversation is the position that advocates of these programs, I think, would take.
0: Book is so interesting. Um, I learned a lot from it, um, both in terms of how to think about this upcoming election, but also just Um, kind of confirming some things that you have a gut reaction about, but uh, uh, the way in which you document this with the empirical analysis is really interesting. Um, uh, Michael's book is Subsidizing Democracy, How Public Funding Changes Elections and How It Can Work in the Future, published by Cornell University Press. Michael, thank you very much for your time today. Thanks
1: for having me. It was fun.